I'm going to go ahead and say this just in case. So if you are here and you're going to be baptized next week, um, plan to be here at 9.30 tomorrow morning. Uh, yeah, tomorrow morning. <laughs> next Sunday morning, 9.30. At, well, we want to make sure they're, they're under. Um, guarantee the resurrection. Uh, the, so we want to be here at 9.30, bring uh, two towels and um, you, dry clo- clothes that you're going to planning to wear to be dry and pl- clothes you're planning to wear to be wet. Um, so usually shorts and t-shirt is, is good for, for going to the baptistry. We don't, you know, do the whole robe thing or anything like that. But um, so 9.30 next Sunday. Uh, yeah, so uh, this morning, this morning we're, we're going to be in First uh, Peter chapter 2. Um, and uh, if, you have, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. The page number is in the bulletin. And you can go take a look at it. Um, but uh, we're going to be talking about something that I think is extremely important as, as believers, as followers of Christ. Uh, and I think it's extremely important for a lot of reasons. But one of the, the primary reasons is um, that, that um, how do I put this? There, there's a tendency among Christians, um, and there's a tendency just among people in general... Uh, to try to do things backwards. What do I mean by do things backwards? Uh, to, to start with an ideal, something you want to be, somewhere you want to go, and then, recon- and then kind of reverse engineer how you're going to get there. Uh, and, and now this is, this is great if you're the Soviets copying an American jet you stole or something. Um, or, or a hydrogen bomb. I suppose it can work. You can reverse engineer things. Um, but there is no way to reverse engineer the person that God wants you to be because you are not the one who decides who the person you, God wants you to be is. Does that make sense? When we try to create an image of who we think God wants us to be and then try to reverse engineer the steps to get to be the person that we think God wants us to be, what we really create is the person that we want to be, and we slap God's name on it. And then we create the steps that we use to get to where we want to be. This was Peter's real issue. I think this was uh, something that, strugg- that Peter struggled with. And I think it's one of the great things that, that we can identify in Peter as something that we struggle with. When we read Peter in the Gospels, um, Peter is always trying to be the guy that he thinks Jesus wants him to be. He is, he, in fact, he is the most earnest, most well-intentioned person who ever jammed their foot up in their mouth. All right? um, that is, that's who Peter is. I mean, Peter is and, and when we read 1 Peter, we see Peter, a mature, older man who has finally realized how to get out of his own way and let God make him who he's intending him to be. And, and so I think this morning, I think the, this, is, this is an important message um, from Peter to us. And so as we look at uh, 1 Peter, I want to begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, created the furthest edges of reality and the smallest distances 
level that we cannot see on either side. Help us in this time to find our center and our place and our anchor in You. That we might see what You are doing. To be encouraged by what Your Spirit is creating in us and among us and through us. That our focus might be more and more upon Your Son as we follow Him. And less and less on our capacity and our ability to contain what He is doing. We ask for clarity of thought and word. We ask that our eyes and our minds and our hands and our hearts might be opened and that we might hear from You. We ask all of this through the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. In the first chapter of First Peter, and we've spent several weeks there, we've spent four weeks there so far, Peter lays out the glory of divine grace. He, he, he takes us through some amazing ideas and, and he conveys to us some of these concepts of, of the imperishability of the gospel, about the, its endurance in the face of human endeavor. And then he begins chapter 2 with this statement, so. So. Now, you probably have had this conversation with your children or child, trying to teach them how something follows after another thing. All right, um, There is a tremendous amount of power in electricity. Electricity flows through the wires in the walls. We plug electrical devices into the outlets that connect to the electricity that flows through the walls. Metal conducts electricity. Forks are metal. So... Have you ever had that kind of a conversation with your child where you've laid out something for them and try to get them to process, okay, so this follows that. Um, that kind of a conversation, those are those moments when your children light dawns on Marblehead and they, they are like, ah, and they figured it out and it's so extraordinary, it isn't amazing that they figured out this idea that you, of course, as a, as a parent, led them into this, this revelation. But it's theirs. They've reached a conclusion based on the evidence presented. Well, the Apostle Peter, I think, through his life, he, he encountered Jesus, not just Jesus, the living person that was his friend, but also uh, the resurrected Jesus. And he interacted with this resurrected Son of God. And, and Christ was leading him into a, a conclusion that he shares with us here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. So, he begins with, so... Because of all of the things from chapter 1, the word of, the word is, this word is the good news that was preached to you is the last verse in chapter, two, chapter 1. And so in ver- chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So, put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and sl- all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spirit... No, as newborn infants long, that's a command, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now in chapter 2, he's going to use all kinds of rapid fire metaphors. He talks about milk and being babies, and then he goes from there, because this is a logical conclusion, um, to talking about stones, 
And because babies and stones, the next logical response would be to talk about priests and kings. All right. Um, so, so Peter is a very rapid fire kind of guy. He, he, he just, all these ideas are in his head. And, and, and chapter 2, just so you know, because we're going to spend a few weeks in, in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 is like, um, and there's a lot of kid metaphors because it's, it's summer. But 1 Peter 2 is kind of like when your kid comes home from the beach, or, or better yet, comes home from Halloween, you know, out stealing candy from people, right? Um, and they come home, and the first thing they want to do is take whatever it is that they have, a better illustration, because my daughter does this all the time, is buckets of toys, all right? Um, and they are so excited about it that they take it, and they run up to the table, and what do they do? They flip it upside down and dump it all over the place. That's what Peter does in 1 Peter 2. He's got all these ideas in his head, and he just dumps them on the table for you. So we've got to, we've got to kind of process our way through what Peter is saying in, in 1 Peter 2. But the very first image that he uses, he says, he says, so. He says, because of all the divine grace that he's talked about in chapter 1, he says, so, and he gives us two commands. He says, first, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then secondly, he says, like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, by the way, he's not talking about growing up into salvation as you're earning this, but rather um, becoming the person that God intends you to be, that God has created you to be. So he gives us these two commands. He says, put away, and he says, long. Um, and, and if we're not careful, remember we talked about getting out of our own way at the beginning? I, I, I just talked about this a minute ago, about how we like to create this image of who we think God wants us to be, and then we reverse engineer the steps to that. Peter is saying, don't do that. All right. So here is the revelation, the divine grace of Christ. He says, now um, I want you to do something else. He says, I want you to put away... And put away, by the way, means exactly what it sounds like. When you tell your children to put something away, that's what this word means in Greek. It means to put it where it belongs. All right? To take something... Now, I know, you know, our children think put away is jam into closet, closed door. All right? Um, but, but put away means to put it in its proper place. How many of you, how many of you uh, ha- are one of those people who has a place for everything and everything in its place? Um, a guy I used to work with when I was a teenager, Fred Fuchs, greatest guy in the in a whole wide world, um, because he would leave two teenagers with the keys to a tractor and drive to North Dakota, um, and just leave us on the farm. That that was always a mistake. But um, but uh, Fred had a a workshop, and in the workshop on the walls were all of his tools, you know, all of his wrenches, all of his stuff, and around the place where every tool went on his board he had drawn an outline of that particular tool. And underneath the tool was written the description of the tool. So uh, 7 sixteenths wrench, you know, 3 eighths inch wrench, all right? And those wrenches went back in the spots where they belonged. And that was the way that Fred's uh, workshop worked. And you did not, you could do anything you wanted on Fuchs Farm. I mean, basically, he just let us run loose. We were like Comanches. All right, but, um, but you did not leave a tool not in its place. Fred would come down on you a little bit of obsessive uh, on that little thing. But everything had its place. Well, 
the Apostle Peter says, you need to put these things. Alright, so let's read the list again. All malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, they need to be put away. They need to be taken off of the table. They need to be put um, where they belong. They need to be removed from the discussion. Now, I want you to think about those, uh, those things, all right? This list. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And I want you to think about what they have in common. What they have in common. Look at them for a second. Look at that list. The English translations of those words are perfectly fine. You don't need any Greek or anything like that. To look at those and say, what do they all have in common? And I'm interested in some of your thoughts. What do you think they all have in common? Trish. Right on the nose. They all have to do with our attitude toward ourselves and others. What is malice? Anger? Um, spitefulness? Just being mean? Right, that's malice. What is deceit? Lying? Cheating? Telling somebody it's something it isn't? What's hypocrisy? Alright? Pretending to be something you're not. You know, saying, you know, here I am and now I'm not, you know. Um, what is envy? What? Jealousy? Looking at somebody saying, why don't I have what they have? What is slander? Sorry, Jan? Alright, speaking badly about others. Saying something about somebody. So they all have to do with our relationship about other people. And I have a, I have a strong suspicion that all of these things listed here are motivations for us to do something to other people in order to make ourselves look better. And, and we often don't think about a lot of the things that are done in our world as coming from the motivation of malice and slander and envy and deceit and hypocrisy. But the reality is, whenever we, we try to either... either um, we try to set up a situation in which um, I look as good as absolutely possible, but I know that I'm not the best at something. Almost inevitably, there's something about the way that I present myself that I demote someone else. Now, this isn't always this isn't always like the mean-spirited self-promotion tearing other people down. It's just an underlying motivation. These are and if you want to describe them, I'm going to put them this way. They are false, self-centered motivations for action. They're not actions themselves. Malice is not a specific action. Malice motivates me to do something else. Envy is not a specific act. Envy and covetousness are kind of tied together. All right? It's not necessarily a specific action, but rather it is an underlying motivation um, and that moves me to do something. 
And these are false, self-centered motivations. It's all about me. Now, I would contend that not only are, can you be negatively self-centered, as in tearing other people down, but even being positively self-centered, lifting yourself up, is still an attack on other people. It's still an elevation of yourself over someone else. I'd like to thank all the small people that I stepped on to get here. All right? Um, that, that these are self-centered motivations, and I don't think this is an exhaustive list. I think that Peter, now catch this, I think that Peter is pointing out his own struggles. The things that Peter diagnoses in himself that motivated him to do some of the, the things that he does in the Gospels that Jesus corrects him on. Now, can I, can I absolutely say this? No, I can't. He doesn't say, these are the things I struggled on, with. But I think Peter is self-diagnosing himself, his own selfish spiritual condition, and saying, these are some of the things that got in my way on my journey with Christ. And, and each of us will have different self-centered motivations. We will, we will act in different ways. I, I think one of the... One of the kind of a, a side thing, but it's important... I think one of the major issues that Christians sometimes have is a self-hypocrisy. What do I mean by that? I think we, we deceive ourselves in the way that we view ourselves. Does that make any sense? We put on a false face for ourselves. We, we tell ourselves we are something else. Now, you say, okay... Let me, let, me, let me put it in a context you can understand. Uh, maybe it'll make it a little bit more comprehensible. We sometimes deceive ourselves about our own worth to God. Uh, one of the conversations I always have with people is sometimes people are so, so focused on the negative aspect of their ministry, their, the, what God has done for them, that they become overwhelmed with everything that is wrong with them. Now look, it's okay. There's nothing wrong. The apostles do it. They sing these, they, they have songs and passages in the, in the epistles where they say, you know, I am a wretched man, I am broken, I, you know, all of these things. But I, I have seen some Christians that the, everything that comes out of their mo- mouth is how depraved and ter- terrible they are. Oh, how could Jesus save me? I'm such a sinner. I am such a terrible person. And they beat on themselves, and they beat on themselves. And to be honest, they're lying to themselves about who they are in Christ. What do you mean? You are lying to yourself if you think that that's all you are. Yes, we all are sinners. Yes, we all are wretched before our God. But His divine grace forgives and purifies and cleanses me. I am not known, I, I should not be identified by my sin. I shouldn't be identified by my self-righteousness. I shouldn't be identified by my sin. I should be identified by the grace with whom I, in whom I have placed my trust. So yeah, I can say I'm a sinner and I'm, I'm wretched. But who I am in Christ is not a sinner and wretched. Who I am in Christ is forgiven, beloved, empowered to minister. We have to be careful about these, these self-centered motivations that get in our way. 
that get in our way. And instead, he commands us, he gives us a second command. He says, long for. That's what he says. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit. Because those things get in your way. Well, what are they getting in the way of? They're getting in the way of a longing that God naturally creates in the believer. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, those of you who have had infants, you know exactly what he's talking about. I have never in my entire life encountered an infant who had any other impulse except eat and sleep. That's what infants think about. Now, how they think about it, their thought process. But you never meet an infant going... You know, in the future, I would really like... They operate entirely in the present moment. They are either hungry or they are sleepy. All right? um, even the concept of safety. You know, we, we cuddle with our babies. Oh, they feel comfortable and at ease with us. What do babies really feel comfortable and ease? What is that a lead up to? Sleep or food? All right? um, that's what babies think about. Now, over time, babies start to, they start to recognize faces and their brains develop and there's all kinds of physiology that goes on in there and, and their impulses go beyond that. But that's what he's describing. He says, like a newborn infant, you should long for the spiritual milk. And, and when Jesus, I think, resonating in Peter's head, is Jesus saying, you know, don't hinder the little children to come to me. For such, he says, are the kingdom of God. They just have a simple desire for what God is doing. And we compound all of these things with, with, I think Peter says, he had compounded his life with all of these self-centered motivations in his faith. He didn't know he was doing it. He didn't understand that he was doing it. But they were getting in the way of what God was trying to do with him. I think for Peter, and this is, this is intense, but I think for Peter, he had to see Jesus tried and crucified and denied and then resurrected before he could begin to get that self-centeredness out of the way. I think Peter was trying. He, he was not, Peter was not insincere in his devotion to Jesus before the resurrection. It wasn't that Peter was, was somehow not striving to, but, but there were all these roadblocks that were getting in the way. And Jesus, as Jesus was at work in Peter, Peter began to realize, okay, here's some malice in my life. I'm going to pick that up and, and put it away. It needs to be off the table. And here, here's some envy in my life. And it, it's kind of getting in the way, and i got to put it here. The best way I could illustrate it is something that happens all the time, um, 4th of July, right? Which is parades. Um, maybe you're one of the adults that like parades. I'm not an adult that likes parades. There is nothing enjoyable about to me about lining the side of a street like this with strangers bumping into you, waiting for other strangers to drive by you. Wasn't this amazing? Did you see the banner those strangers had? Those strangers were throwing sticks. Those strangers were playing music. 
You know, oh, look, a band of strangers. Um, it's, just, it's just me. I, now, I understand, I understand that people enjoy parades. I do. I get it. I've marched in parades. I did, uh, I did rifle, uh, I was on the rifle team when I was a teenager. So I was one of those guys who could throw a rifle up in the air, catch him behind his back and all that stuff. I can't do it anymore. Don't ask. All right. Um, I had a little epaulet that I wore. It was very, era, uh, not epaulet, um, I can't remember what the name for it is, but a little cord that you wear in your uniform. Anyway, um, but take a kid to a parade and put them behind a bunch of people. And what is the one thing going on inside that kid's head? Get out of my way. I want to see. Now, I have this problem in real life as an adult, so that might be why I don't like parades. Um, but... But you take a kid and you put them behind. You, it was a height joke. Uh, you put a, you put a kid behind, and they want those things out of the way. Why? So they can see what's going on. And the apostle Peter is saying the same thing about malice and envy and hypocrisy and all these things. It's in the way of of the desire to know the simple things of God. Our self-centered and our self-imagination of what God wants us to be gets in the way of seeing what God really wants us to be, of being and growing in the way that God wants us to grow. And in order to expose, this is the big idea, if you really want to write the big idea, in order to expose the divine motivation for your life, You have to recognize and deal with the false motivations in your life. You've got to get them out of the way. You've got to put them away. They've got to get out of the way because God has something for you. God has a place for you to go. And all of our self-centered false motivations are men and women standing in the way so we can't see his vision and he wants us to get out of the way. Isn't this, at its very core, the embodiment of the second commandment? Or the first commandment? Shall have no other gods, where? Before me. The Hebrew word before, by the way, means um, face to face. It means, um, and so the idea of something getting in between my face and God's face. Getting in between... Um, who I am and who God is moving me to become. And so I have to take those, those self-centered motivations, all that malice and envy and, and hypocrisy and deceit and all those things that are, that are boiling inside of every single human being. We have to strive to get those things out of the way so that in a simple way we are longing after the things of God. I think sometimes we crowd the landscape of our minds so much with not necessarily bad material, but distracting things. And so as a result, we're not able to see the simplicity of who we are. I, I remember having a conversation with someone who was struggling with their child, the behavior of their child. And th this particular person had all of these parenting books and was telling me, I tried this, and I tried this, and they were actually taking the books out 
and showing me where they had underlined passages of these books. I tried this, and I tried this, and I tried this, and I tried this, and the child is still terrible. I don't understand. And, and the best thing sometimes we can ever do is close all of those books, get them out of the way, seek God's face, strip away all of our false expectations, and become who God wants us to become. It may not look like what so-and-so says a good parent should be. It may not smell like what so-and-so says it's supposed to smell like. But if God is guiding us... Now, there are parameters for where God takes you. God will never, ever, 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 ever tell you to do something that is contrary to His revealed Word. He will never do that. So you as a parent, if you say, I think God wants me to tie my children up. While the Bible does not strictly command us not to tie our children up, I'm going to go ahead and say that's probably a violation of the biblical role of a a parent. You can read the book of Ephesians and Colossians to deal with that. Probably not a list. Uh, Probably not on the list. We are never commanded to do things that are not God in God's Word. God's Word dictates to us. It sets the parameters for what we are going to do. But as we do those things, we are different. We do different things. We do the same thing differently as God transforms us and changes us and molds us to what He wants us to be. I guess there are two big ideas. I want to stick this one. This one's actually alliterated, so that's cool. Alliterations are cool. What we see with, Paul, with Peter here is that Peter is responding to the revelation of the gospel and the, re- the revelation of the gospel, which, of course, is external to him. God is revealing himself to him. And the realization of the gospel in his own heart and mind. The gospel is revealed to us and then we realize its implications in our lives and we respond. And if we clear away all of the distractions that are between us and God, if we ask the question, is that motivation of God or is that motivation of Eric? You ask it with your name inserted, okay? Um, but but for, for me, I have to look at myself and say, is that a motivation of God, or is that a motivation that I have filtered what I think God wants me to do and be, and, and, and I have somehow transferred God's name to that? I have to filter that all out, because as the gospel has been revealed to me, and I am realizing its implications in me, I respond to those things. Sometimes I respond wrong, and we have to admit when we respond wrong. Peter has to admit that he has done the wrong thing at times. So do we. But we are constantly responding to the revealed and realized gospel. Now, what does the word realized mean? I, I, should, I should just clarify that real quick. Realized means, and this is deep, this is very profound. Are you all ready? Realized means it becomes a reality. Realized reality, okay? That's what it means. The gospel becomes a reality to me. It is one thing for me to say, I believe, 
click, 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 click. Is it another thing for me to say that what I believe has been revealed becomes a reality to me? Sometimes those realities are aha moments. Oh, why didn't I think of that? The Holy Spirit opens eyes. Sometimes those things are emotional moments. You're weeping over what God reveals to you. Sometimes those realizations are, whew, I am so glad that is not my job. I'll never forget the moment when I realized that the template of what a pastor had to be, I didn't care. That God said, a pastor is not, pastor is not an office I invented in the 1700s in America. It is a it is a appointed role, the elder or the presbyter, and and look to the scriptures for what a pastor should be, and look to the scriptures for the way that a sermon should be preached, and look to the scriptures for the way that you should care for people, and look to the scriptures for the way that you should lead. Don't look at some model that somebody told you you have to follow. I was like, woo! That's awesome. God does that in our lives. Sometimes, sometimes, there are, sometimes there are those emotional moments. Sometimes there are those aha moments. Sometimes there are those moments of relief. Sometimes there are those moments of utter responsibility. When the weight of the message of the gospel weighs on you so much that you realize, I, have, I am called to declare a holy God to a people that don't want to hear Him. Those are my Jeremiah moments. If you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, you know what I'm talking about. But the most important thing we can do in order to know and uh, in order to grow, strike the word no, in order to grow into the person that God intends us to be, get rid of those selfish, self-centered views, the wrath, the malice, the envy, the hypocrisy, all those different things, the things we deceive ourselves, the things we use to deceive others, all of those things, get those things out of the way so that the, the path between me and God is cleared and that desire becomes manifest in me and the gospel goes from being just something that sits on the shelf to being a revealed and realized truth in who I am. Does that make sense? And I started this morning by saying sometimes we get in our own way and I want to I bring it back to that. And this is important for kids who are growing up in the church. So kids, I'm glad that you're here. Because you need to understand this as well as your moms and dads do. You need to understand that Christianity, the faith that we practice, is not composed of a list of rules that tell you how to behave and how to walk and what to say and what to do. That is not Christianity. That is, and you can write this word down if you really want to, it's called moralism. Here is a list of all the good things you are supposed to do in order to be a good Christian. There is only one thing that makes me a Christian, and it has nothing to do with what I do. It is the grace of Jesus Christ that I am a Christian. I simply come under the power of Christ. He does all that is being done. And when I get the distractions out of the way, I will desire, I will learn to, let me rephrase that, I will learn to desire the things that will grow me into a mature believer. But you cannot take a list 
and say, these things make a Christian, do these things. That is completely unbiblical. And not only that, it denies the reality of God's work in your life. Now, there are certain things, there are lists in the Bible. All right, Don't commit adultery, don't murder people. Those are pretty straightforward things. They don't make you a Christian. There's a moment when Jesus interacts with somebody. And some of you know this story. A young, young ruler comes to Jesus. He says, what do I have to do to get in the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, just keep all the commandments. He goes, oh, I kept all the commandments all my life. I've been doing really good with that. And Jesus says, okay, just go ahead and sell everything that you own. And the Bible says that he went away. The young man went, oh, really? Now, I would question whether he kept all the commandments. There's a little commandment about being covetous. Right? And, and clearly, he, he was covetous of his own stuff. He was not willing to let his own stuff be God's. But there is no list that makes you a Christian. There's only one thing that makes you a Christian, and that is Jesus Christ and his grace. The re- revealed message of Jesus Christ, as Peter knew it, as Paul knew it, and as we know it today, is that Jesus Christ is God the Son, born of a virgin, lived without sin, laid his life down, for the sins of mankind, was raised on the third day, and has ascended to heaven, and sits at, the, sits at the right hand of the Father. And He offers grace to you and me. We simply accept it. We simply say, this is true. That's the Gospel. And then as it is realized inside of me. That is the gospel revealed, and as it is realized inside of me, it changes me, and I grow, and I mature, and I move the barriers so that I can know who he calls me to be. And, and kids, I'm going to tell you something. It's very, very easy to fall into the trap of saying, as long as I follow the list and do all the good things, I'm okay. Grown-ups, this is true for us as well. As long as I follow the list, as long as I do the steps, as long as I follow the process, I'm good. The reality is that can't save you. It won't save you. It won't do anything for you except give you a smug sense of self-worth. Aren't I the greatest person ever? I am such a good Christian. God is so lucky to have me. The reality is, I as a sinner come to Christ. He does all the saving. And then my response to the revelation of all that work is I I begin to clear out the things that distract me, those self-centered motivations, so that I can see clearly and learn to long purely for the Word of God to be realized in me. Join me in prayer. We often talk to your father here. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for leaving your friend Peter. Tell us about his life. I know that he he was your heartbreak. 
so often you, you, you challenged him and, and he disappointed. Then he understood. Then he finally got out of his way. Learn to walk after you. He was your rock. He was, in many ways, so much like us. Help us to clear out the things that get in the way that we might follow you. Father, we know, I know as a pastor, there's so much pooling on the lives of our young people. So many that get pulled away from faith in church because they've been told that as long as they do the right things and give the right appearance, that's all that's expected of them. Father, I pray for the young people of our church. I pray for their parents, their grandparents, their friends. Lord, I ask that you would clear, help them to clear away the obstacles that they might own their faith. That it, it would be for your glory and who they are in you would be formed by who you are and what you're doing in them. And that you would move the, the young men and young ladies of our church to rise and be not just the next generation, but the present generation of our church. Lord, help them to know what you're doing in their midst. To see your spirit at work. Lord, we thank you that we are not left to our own devices. Give you praise and glory this morning. Thank you. Thank you for your spirit that does this amazing thing in us. We respond, you grow us. Thank you.